You're listening to Practical Ethics Bites with me, Nigel Warburton. And me, David Edmonds. Practical Ethics Bites is made in association with Oxford's Uhero Centre for Practical Ethics. Abortion has been legal in Britain for nearly five decades, though there are still periodic battles over the development stage at which abortion should be permitted. Nonetheless, it remains a polarising issue, with some religious believers especially believing it's tantamount to murder. As Rebecca Roach explains, in philosophy there's one particularly famous thought experiment that's been used to debate these matters. It involves a sick violinist. Rebecca Roach, welcome to Practical Ethics Bites. Thank you very much. The topic we're going to focus on is the ethics of abortion. Abortion has been discussed quite a lot by philosophers, but there's one central thought experiment which they keep coming back to, the violinist that Judith Jarvis Thompson came up with. Yes, most people have intuitions about that. Thompson's argument was in favour of the permissibility of abortion, and she argues by analogy. So she asks us to imagine a scenario where you wake up in bed one morning and find that you're in a hospital and that you have been connected up to a famous violinist who's lying in the bed beside you. And you discover that the famous violinist is ill. His only chance for survival is to be wired up to you. The Society of Music Lovers has arranged this because they want him to survive. And they say to you that all you need to do is stay in bed with the violinist connected to you for nine months. And during that time, the violinist will be able to recover and you'll be able to go your separate ways. Now, she sees the relationship between you and the violinist as analogous to the relationship between the mother and the baby she's carrying. And she argues that, although it would be a nice thing to do to stay in bed wired up to the violinist for nine months, you wouldn't be morally required to do it. So it would be permissible to unplug the violinist, even though you know that he would die. And by analogy, it would be permissible for a woman to have an abortion to get rid of her fetus that she's carrying, even though this means the death of the baby. In that argument from analogy, obviously, if you're having an argument from analogy, the two things being compared have to be similar in certain important respects. What are the plausible points of comparison there? Well, Thompson is recognising that the mother has certain rights and interests and also recognising that the embryo at least has a certain moral worth. Just as the violinist has an interest in continuing to live and recover, so does the fetus. The point that she's trying to make is that there's a conflict here. There's a conflict between the interests of the mother and the interests of the fetus. So the interests of the fetus to continue to survive conflict with the interests of the mother not to be pregnant for whatever reason, just as the interests of the violinist to survive conflict with your, the patient's, interest to just go and do whatever you wanted to do for the next nine months. So the analogy works on the basis that the violinist is making quite large demands on this woman's body. But unlike with having a baby, there don't seem to be continuing obligations after the end of the process. Right, yes. So you're not required to breastfeed the violinist. Well, beyond breastfeeding, I think just the concern for the child. I mean, most people treat their own offspring as people they have particular responsibilities towards. Right, so this might be an objection to Thompson's example. So it might be that you want to say that waking up in the bed wide up to the violinist, you don't have a particular obligation to the violinist, whereas a mother has certain obligations to her child. We generally think, for example, that it's worse for a parent to abuse their child than it would be for a stranger to do so. Even though both are bad, the abuse of a child by its parent is a particular sort of badness because it's a breach of trust or breach of responsibility or whatever. 
Another thing that's always worried me is why a violinist? What's the whole point of it being a violinist? So one thing you might think is that it sort of brings into play a particular interest that this person has in surviving. They have a certain skill that they've cultivated, a certain type of future. They're also bringing pleasure to others. So there are other people who have an interest in the violinist's survival. So first of all, the Society of Music Lovers, who've arranged for this wiring up to take place, and also whoever enjoys their music. And by analogy, there are often people who have an interest in a pregnancy coming to fruition and the child being born. You know, that might be members of the family. The father will have an interest in um, the child being born, assuming that he wants that to happen, and so on. So, in both cases, there's interests at play other than the patient stroke mother and the violinist stroke fetus. Just to get clear, with Judith Jarvis's thought experiment, It's a crazy situation. It's not actually going to happen. But the reason she's produced this far-fetched thought experiment is to draw attention to key features of the nature of pregnancy and the way in which what happens to a fetus isn't the only issue. She particularly draws attention to the way in which a fetus can make demands on a woman's body. Exactly. So she's showing that you can recognise the moral worth of the fetus but still think that abortion is permissible. It's not merely a question of whether you think the fetus has a right to life or an interest in continuing. It's the weighing up of the interest of the fetus versus the interest of the mother. Some pro-life arguments, as they're called, so people who think that abortion is impermissible, focus on the moral worth of the fetus as if all we need to do is establish the fetus's moral worth and that will show that abortion is impermissible. What Thompson does is show that you can acknowledge the moral worth of the fetus. She's supposing that the worth of the fetus is analogous to the worth of a fully grown, talented human adult. But even acknowledging that doesn't establish the impermissibility of abortion. Well, one striking difference between the violinist case and most pregnancies is that this woman didn't risk, as far as she knew, getting attached to a violinist when she went into hospital. Yes, so one objection is that the relationship between the patient and the violinist is only analogous to the relationship between the mother and her fetus after rape in a case where the mother has had no choice about whether to become pregnant or not. That seems to suppose that people who who are pregnant not as a result of rape have made the choice to become pregnant. I mean, that's debatable. A lot of people have used contraception and it may have failed. A lot of people may simply not have given the situation sufficient thought. And so there's a question about the extent to which it's appropriate to suppose that any woman who becomes pregnant has consented to become pregnant. There is a kind of rhetoric about the Judith Jarvis Thompson thought experiment where it's pushing you in a particular direction. Well, what about a thought experiment going the other way? Imagine women had transparent abdomens and we could see from the moment of conception, the fetus developing, would we feel as tolerant about abortion in those circumstances? That thought experiment might push people's intuitions in a different way. I think that's probably true. That would push people to maybe emotionally engage with the fetus in a way that we don't currently do. The situation you've just described actually resembles somebody in the US a year or so ago suggested that a prerequisite to being allowed to abort a child should be that you should have to have an ultrasound scan. You should actually have to see the baby on a screen before you're allowed to abort it. I mean, that seems to be a similar sort of thing. The idea seems to be that if you see the baby on the screen kicking and moving around, then you're much less likely to want to abort it. And again, this seems to be something that appeals to the emotions. 
it's not necessarily something that figures in the moral debate, but it's something that figures in, you know, once you've decided abortion is wrong, this is a technique that we might use to try and discourage people from having them. So the way that Judith Jarvis Thompson set up that thought experiment, she assumes that the fetus has more or less the status of an adult human being. But there is a further issue. Does a fetus have the moral status of a person? Yeah, so a lot of people who oppose abortion think that from the moment of conception, or at least from a sort of very early stage, that the embryo or the fetus has sufficient moral worth to make it impermissible to kill it. But this is something that's disputed. So some people think, for example, that at the moment of a conception, what you have is in some sense a human being or the precursor to a human being, but that being a human being or a precursor to a human being is not sufficient for having moral worth. People might think, for example, that what matters is being a person, so being self-aware, able to suffer pain, be conscious, communicate, be capable of reasoning, an agency and so on. These are all the things that matter for having the sort of moral worth that grown humans have. And fetuses and embryos don't have that. So there comes a stage or there's a process through which the embryo or the fetus goes when they gradually acquire the qualities that make them a person. But until that stage, they're not a person. And so they count less morally than a person does. And because of that, we don't have to treat them with the sort of respect and consideration that we have to treat a person. And extremely controversially, some philosophers have gone so far as to say that infanticide killing babies after they're outside of the womb can be morally justified in the way that abortion could be justified because we're not dealing with a person they're not dealing with a self-conscious being so up until a child is maybe a couple of years old they're no more intelligent and self-aware and so on than say chimpanzees or sort of certain other animals and if you think that those other animals are less worthy morally than people than persons then you're committed to the idea that very young children the toddlers are not worth as much as a more developed human being another point raised by the example you just raised is uh, the question of whether being outside the womb matters so one thing there is that once a child is born there's no longer a conflict of interest between the embryo and the mother so this is like the violinist being unplugged from the patient the violinist is no longer dependent on the person to whom they were wired up. So there's no longer that conflict of interest. So it might be that it's permissible to abort a fetus because the interests of the mother override whatever interests the fetus have. But once the baby is born, that conflict is no longer in play and so that might mean it's impermissible to kill a baby once it's been born. The notion that a fetus could survive outside of the womb if removed at a particular stage in its development often features in decisions about where to set the limit on abortion so how many weeks after conception exactly i think you can abort up to 24 weeks in most circumstances in the uk because that is the cut-off point at which the baby is able to survive outside the womb so the idea is that in most cases a baby born at 24 weeks with the right sort of help would be able to survive and that means it would be impermissible to kill it inside the womb Obviously, the moral question isn't exactly the same as the legal one, but we hope there is some connection between the two. And if the law sets a limit in relation to what's possible in terms of survival of a fetus outside the womb, presumably a consequence of that is that in some countries without advanced medical postnatal care, the law should be set differently from those where a fetus could survive at a very young age. 
Right. So this is a point that the philosopher Peter Singer has made. If you have very poor medical facilities, if a baby is unlikely to survive even at eight and a half months, for example, then if they adopt the same sort of rationale that the UK adopts, then that would allow abortion up until a fetus is eight and a half months developed. It might also, pushing it further, if you have a very high infant mortality rate up to the age of, say, two, then that could even justify killing toddlers. So it's important to note that perhaps that for legal purposes, lines have to be drawn. We have to decide how to divide up these cases, um, which are impermissible from which are permissible. But there is a separate moral question as to um, when it's wrong, maybe in ideal circumstances, given all the medical technology, at what stage it might be impermissible to go through with an abortion. For a, an abortion to be justified on moral grounds, it seems to me that you'd have to have good reasons for the abortion, not just any reasons. So how do we set the limit on what counts as good reasons? That's, again, a difficult question. People tend to have intuitions about this. So there was some data a few years back about late-term abortions. So I think in the UK, there is, in some circumstances, you can have an abortion after the usual limit, but only for very particular reasons. And there was, there was outrage that these figures emerged, that people were having abortions for what a lot of us would think as sort of not good reasons. I remember a case where the child had a cleft palate, for example. Most of us would think that it's better not to have a cleft palate than to have one, but it probably doesn't mean that it's worse to live with one than not to live at all. So people's intuitions tend to be that if it's okay to have an abortion, it's okay to have it for good reasons. It would be a more extreme position to take to think that any reason is good enough. So having an abortion because it conflicts with the possibility of going on holiday or having an abortion because you discovered you're about to have a male child rather than a female or you're about to have twins when you thought you were just having one child, those seem to be certainly controversial grounds for having an abortion. Exactly. And there's also an interesting conflict that comes into play here where society shouldn't intervene paternalistically and tell you what is a good reason compared to what is a bad reason to have an abortion. But there are sort of more indirect ways that society tries to exert this sort of influence. So in certain health authorities, say, where the sorts of people that live in that area come from the sorts of cultures where a certain sex is valued less than another sex. A lot of health authorities won't do the sort of prenatal testing to let people know whether they're going to have a boy or a girl because they've seen an increase in abortions as a result of the outcome of that decision. Some people think what makes abortion so wrong is you're dealing with a soul. It's not just a biological organism, that there is something that enters this developing fetus that is the soul. Yeah, so let's start from the assumption that that's the view that people have. We're not going to try and convince them otherwise. A colleague of mine here, Toby Ord, well, he starts by pointing out that for every pregnancy that is successful where a baby is born, there's any number of conceptions that didn't come to term. And that's not through abortion or anything like that. It's just through a natural process whereby it just happens that most conceptions don't result in a, a full pregnancy. Now, if a soul enters the um, embryo at, at the point of conception, that means that for every person, there's maybe sort of two or three souls that have died without the pregnancy going ahead. So if it's bad for a soul to die with the embryo, then maybe we should be intervening and stopping this natural process from happening. One common sort of case in which people do have abortions is when they discover that the fetus has certain abnormalities that will, will lead to disabilities. Is there a moral issue there about using that kind of reasoning? 
One point there would be the same sort of point that we were discussing in the Judith Jarvis Thompson case. So there's a weighing of interest between the child and the mother. You might think that if a child is going to be born with a disability, that would require a much larger commitment on behalf of the parents. There would be a much larger conflict of interest between the, the child's life continuing and the parents having to care for the child. So you might think that aborting a child with some sort of abnormality is justifiable for that reason. There are also, sadly, cases where children are going to be born who are going to be so ill that their lives are going to be spent in pain. And in those cases, we might think it would be kinder to abort them. It would be an analogy with euthanasia here. There comes a point where we think that a life filled with a certain amount of pain is just worse than death. So in that case, abortion might be kind of like euthanasia. And yet a number of adults with severe disabilities feel that abortion on those grounds implies that the people having the abortion don't value those adults with disabilities, treat them as if their lives aren't really worth living. Exactly. It's quite a sensitive area. So it's important to be sensitive about what sort of message you convey to disabled people. And this is a point that Jonathan Glover makes, and he defends it by saying that For example, if you find out you have cancer, you will go and seek normally some medical treatment. Basically, you try to get rid of the cancer. But we don't think that that's insulting to people with cancer. By saying, well, I want to get rid of my cancer, that must mean that people with cancer are somehow morally worth less than other people. What we do there is we separate the person from their affliction. So we're saying the affliction is bad, but we don't say anything about the person. So we might try to encourage a similar a similar approach to um, aborting disabled foetuses in pregnancy. It's bad to have a disability, but that doesn't mean that disabled people are morally worthless. Rebecca Roach, thank you very much. Thank you. For more Practical Ethics Bites, go to www.practicalethics.ox.ac.uk.